<coughs> All right, the only couple, only two announcements to remind you of tonight. First of all, this Sunday, the kids are going to be leaving to go up to Camp Arete, and so they're going to be taking off, I think, around 5 a.m., and so we want to make sure, what, isn't that right? Saturday morning. Saturday morning. What did I say, Friday? Sunday. Sunday. Saturday morning. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we have the gift of interpretation, I know. Okay, so they're leaving Saturday morning at 5 o'clock, or they're supposed to be here at 5 o'clock? Be here at 5. Be here at 5, Okay. I've been in contact with Rick. Do you know that information that supposedly there's a security guard that comes here and opens at 5 because Aunt Pookie's people need to come in and things like that? He's also got a code to be able to get in. And um, if there's a problem, call me. I My phone will be off, but you can call me and leave a message. <laughs> All right. And then um, for the men, we have our men, monthly men's prayer breakfast on uh, July 21st at 7.30, so that's always a tremendous time of fellowship and talking about the Word, and so I plan to be here for that. Those are the two main announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to be spiritually prepared, and that means that we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that we are to walk by the Spirit, but often we sin and we fail to walk by the Spirit, and when we do that, we have to recover And God has graciously given us a means of recovery, which simply means that we admit to him our sin. We confess it. That's all it means is to admit or acknowledge our sin to God. And instantly we are forgiven of those sins. But in addition, in God's grace, he cleanses us from all other sins. So at that point, we're restored to fellowship and we can continue our spiritual walk. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have forgiveness of sin, that we have positional forgiveness at salvation, and that when we sin along the way, when we admit our sins to you, we're instantly forgiven and cleansed and restored to fellowship, and we can actively pursue spiritual growth. Father, we're thankful for your grace, your goodness, all that you've provided for us, the guidance of your word. And Father, as we study about worship, a topic that for many is quite controversial today, uh, we need to understand what you have revealed through the ages about worship, coming to understand who you are. And I think the more we understand who you are, the more some of these issues that people argue about or disagree over will hopefully just fade into the sunset because it's all about you and it's not about us. And Father, help us to focus on who you are as we study about uh, you as our creator tonight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We've been going through worship. We started in 1 Corinthians 15 and at that time, as we're going through the life of David in Second Samuel, 
in First Chronicles 15, excuse me, uh, First Chronicles 15 tells the full story of what David did at the time that he is moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and bringing it, um, uh, bringing it there from Kiriath-Jerim in order to eventually prepare things for the uh, construction of the temple, a dwelling place sanctuary for God. And the Ark of the Covenant is, is significant uh, for a number of different reasons, but ultimately because this is where the psalmist says uh, God dwells. His throne is above the cherubim. And on the mercy seat, on the lid over the Ark of the Covenant, uh, there are the two cherubim who look down on the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. And it is there that God is said to be enthroned. It's invisible. And I believe as we go through this, you'll understand some of the reasons for it eventually, is that this is, is where heaven and earth intersect. And that there is something incredibly significant about the location on the Temple Mount. And this is, a lot of people don't realize this. I had several people on the trip to Israel this time and in previous trips, I'll comment, when they realize that that the Temple Mount there where that monstrosity called the Dome of the Rock is located, the rock is the foundation stone. That's what the rock, the term rock refers to. That rock, that foundation stone is where the Ark of the Covenant sat in the Holy of Holies in the temple. This is the, was the dwelling place of God in the, in the first temple until because of Israel's carnality and apostasy, the glory of God departed from the temple. But beyond that, this is the location in Genesis 22 where Abraham took his son, his only son, Isaac, to follow God's command to sacrifice Isaac. And it was a test to see if finally Abraham understood that God had promised that this son would, would be the promised seed through whom uh, his descendants would come and that God would then bless the world through, through Isaac. And so this was the test. God never intended for Abraham to actually carry through with that, with that uh, command to sacrifice Isaac. But that was the test, and so that occurs. And you have the beautiful picture of God uh, sending a ram that's caught in the trees there um, on Mount Moriah to provide a substitute for Isaac as a picture of substitutionary atonement. And so all of this takes place. There's something about that location that is significant because this eventually will still be when there's this geological uplift with after the earthquake that occurs at the time of the second coming that this is where the future temple will be located so there's something about God's plan for the geography there uh, that is that is significant and so all of this help is is related to our topic of worship because it takes us into the Old Testament. And to understand worship, we have to start in Genesis 1. We have to start with where the Bible starts and build a biblical understanding 
of what worship is, and that means we start, and since most near, every doctrine is revealed incrementally or progressively down through the dispensations, we need to to take a little time to do that. I don't want to get bogged down into a, this could be a long series because there's a lot to it, but I want to hit the high points, and what we'll see uh, in this, in as we proceed here, is first of all, will examine how God as the creator is connected to his majesty and his power. And what we've seen in our previous lessons on worship is as Isaiah the prophet has this vision, he comes into the temple and there's the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. He's not in there, but he's in the temple and God grants him a, a vision the sight to see past this dimension into heaven and he sees the throne of God that is in that where God is enthroned above the cherubim and he sees the the seraphim in heaven who are singing to God holy 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 and he recognizes that he is a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips emphasizing their their sinfulness and that there must be a cleansing. This is something we'll see all the way through Scripture is a, a prelude to worship is the need for spiritual cleansing, which is why we go through, always have silent prayer before we begin to study the Word. So he comes face to face with the majesty and the power, the righteousness and justice of God, in in that particular scene and as the angels are singing they are they talk about the 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 fullness of god and that's a relation to to uh this whole doctrine of of creation and so we have to uh, when we, we have to look at at worship as specifically related to comprehending the majesty the power, the wonder, the glory of God in all of these terms that are used there. So uh, to start with that, we have to look at this doctrine of creation. And once we do that, we'll go back and we'll look at some things and, and refer to some things in Genesis 1. We've done a lot of work in Genesis 1 in the past, and so we're building on uh, what we've learned in those studies. And so we'll move through God's creation as it's described in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 in order to comprehend what is happening in relation to worship. And we're going to build on a lot of things that we've covered before in Hebrews, things that we've covered in Kings with the temple, the tabernacle, what's going on, and try to correlate these things. And what is so significant about the dwelling of God in the midst of his people because that starts in Genesis 1. It starts in this garden that is planted east of Eden in Genesis 2 where he puts these these two creatures that he's created, male and female, in his image. And that is where worship begins and it's also where worship became corrupted because of sin. And so we need to trace this this whole idea out. And then third, as we develop this, we talk through this whole idea of the dwelling of God in the Old Testament where God dwelt on the earth. 
This was his dwelling in Eden, and then uh, he stayed there, I believe, during that first period, the first age of the Gentiles until the flood, and then after that, there's no dwelling of God on the earth until the tabernacle is built, and then the temple, and then the glory of God departs, and then what happens? Then Jesus, you have the incarnation of Jesus, and it says, and he tabernacled, skene is the Greek word, it's the same word that's used to describe the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word was mishkan, M-S-H-K-N. Those are the consonants. And shakan is the Hebrew verb for dwelling. So when you make it a noun, the dwelling place, you call it the mishkan. And this was what the, the tabernacle was called, the, the mishkan, the dwelling place of God. And then Jesus tabernacles among us, according to John 1. And then what happens? Then you have the ascension of Christ from the Mount of Olives. We've studied that in the past. Jesus ascends from the same location that the Shkene, the Shekinah, glory of God departed from the Mount of Olives in Ezekiel's vision uh, back in about 600 uh, BC, and then what happens? Ten days later, the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit is going to indwell every church age believer, and we are made a temple. So, this whole theme comes together, and then eventually, all of this focuses on what happens in the millennial kingdom in relation to the millennial uh, temple, and then the eternal state where God dwells on the earth amongst us. And so it, it, it's, it, we've got to develop a holistic picture. There's something that began in Genesis 1, got corrupted in Genesis 2, and then expands and develops through the rest of the scripture until we have a complete restoration by the time we get to Revelation chapter 22. So the purpose of this is to expand our understanding of worship. I didn't get that finished. Today was a day when I spent two hours on the phone with not my usual Apple Care. Okay, so I get interrupted with a lot of things like that, and I get halfway through slides, and I have to do something else. So anyway, so as we look at this and examine it, we're going to have to understand. Oh, that's what I where I ended it. Okay. I have it in my notes. So, we'll expand our understanding of the following. God's purposes in creation related to his rule. That's a key idea that we run through all through Scripture is the rule of God. And secondly, God's majesty, which is, to be dis which is displayed through his creation. So, we'll look at God's purposes in creation related to his rule, and then God's uh, the majesty of God as displayed through his creation. And then third, the role of man in relation to that rule. So this is a key idea, the rule of God, sometimes referred to as God's dominion. And all of this is foundational and interconnects with everything related uh, to everything related to worship. So in Genesis 1.26... What does God say when he creates man? He says, let's make man in our image. That's a key word. An image is a representation of God. If you go through all the pagan temples in the Old Testament, 
what do you find? You find the image of a God. What does God say in the beginning of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no gods before me. You shall make no images. Okay, so who's the image of God? It's human beings. We're the image of God. That's vital for understanding what happens in terms of church-age believers as temples for the Holy Spirit. It's all related to the fact that we have to have this image restored, renovated, in order to fulfill the initial um, purpose of God. So that's what's stated here. Uh, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion, that's rule, to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, this verse was clearly understood by early uh, environmentalists at the end of the 19th century to be an anti-environmentalist concept for man to rule over the animals, that, that they, the creation is in a subordinate role. And as a result of that, these early, envirom- early modern environmentalists in Europe in the 19th century understood that that uh, this was a Jewish concept. And so what happened is this was something else that fed the anti-Semitism of Europe and eventually became a key element within Nazi theology and Nazi philosophy in the era from the 1920s through uh, the time of the Third Reich. And Mark Musser has written a tremendous, uh, tremendous book on this, I can't remember the name of what? Nazi Oaks. Nazi Oaks. Uh, tremendous book. I took copies over and put them in the Yad Vashem library because it connects this, this Jewish theology, Old Testament theology of man's purpose to have dominion over nature to uh, the rejection of this by environmentalists and how that fed into their anti-Semitism. So in Genesis 127, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. So this is the second and third time we have this concept mentioned. And whenever the Holy Spirit's repeating things like this, we have to pay attention. It's critical to understand that every human being, male and female, is in the image of God. It wasn't erased with sin. It's corrupted by sin. But nevertheless, we still have this mission, although it's going to be very limited until the Messiah returns. Verse 28, so God blessed them and said, notice there are five commands here, and they run counter to modern environmentalism. First of all, we have to have population control, don't we? But God says, be fruitful and multiply. And and he says that again after the Noahic flood. After the worldwide flood, he says, be fruitful and multiply, and he never said stop. And so this is still a mission for the human race, and we do not suffer from overpopulation at all, despite what uh, the uh, liberals say, all have a foundation that rejects the scripture. So be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We are to, God made the earth, the natural resources on the earth, for the benefit, for the pleasure of man. We should not destroy it in the process, which often has happened, but we are to develop it and use these natural resources 
uh, for the comfort of our lives. So we are to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing that moves upon the earth. So those are the first five mandates that God gives to the human race, but he gives two more when we get into Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 15, God has created Adam, but he hasn't yet created Eve. And so there is a statement made here. Chapter 2 is the expansion of what happens on the sixth day. On the sixth day, we just read about in Genesis 1, uh, 25 to 27, but now God expands what happened on that day in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2. And there we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to serve and watch over it. Now that word to put is an interesting Hebrew word. And when I've studied this in the past, I miss this. It is the same word that is the root word for the name of Noah. Noah, and it means rest. So God is putting man to in this in the garden and this is related to the whole concept that we'll see later of the sabbath rest and the sabbath rest isn't that when god decreed the seventh day that man was just going to sit around and twiddle his thumbs and be a couch potato for uh, 24 hours but that he would be involved in worshiping god and this was a time of celebration of god's work uh, God set apart the seventh day and hallowed it. That means he sanctified it. He set it apart as a day to focus upon God. And so there's a correlation there between the words that are used for rest in Genesis uh, 2, uh, Genesis 2, 2, and the synonym of Noach in Genesis chapter uh, 2, 15. So there's, a, there's this connection there uh, with the verbs with the verb there and then the purpose that's stated is God's going to put him in the garden of Eden to serve and to watch over it now those are a couple of interesting words because it's usually not translated to serve and to watch it's usually translated uh, with the idea that uh, took the man and put him in the garden to tend and to keep it and the it is taken to be the garden However, uh, we'll get into the technicalities of this eventually, I'm sure, but the it is a misunderstanding of the Hebrew. And the Hebrew suffix there isn't a suffix that should be translated as a, as a pronoun as it, but it should be uh, translated simply as an infinitive. Not, the it is not there. And so by using, uh, for John's benefit, it's got a, a comet's hay without the doggish in the hay, okay? That little dot makes a big difference. Put the dot there, it's a pronoun. If you don't have the dot there, then it renders it to, and, and it should be rendered as an infinitive, that God put, it, put them in the garden to serve and to shamar, to guard. Now, we'll get into this later on, but those two words are critical for understanding worship because it's those words used individually and many times in the same verse 
all through the latter part of Exodus and Leviticus when it's describing the uh, worship work of the Levitical priests. They are there to watch, to guard, to protect, and to serve God. And that word uh, avad that's translated uh, work here, to tend the garden or to work it, is the word to serve. And it is a key word for understanding serving God, which is the essence uh, of worship. And we see a connection with this from the beginning to the end. And we look at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22.3, after the new heavens and new earth have been created and God is now dwelling on the earth, so the whole earth becomes God's dwelling place. His presence, his glory illuminates the whole earth, so there's no need for a sun or moon. And we read in those first five verses of Revelation 22, and there shall be no more curse, so there's no evidence of the curse of of uh, Genesis 3 anymore but the throne of God and of the Lamb now that's a, a important it's one throne and God and the Lamb are on that throne by this point Jesus has been enthroned and he it's his throne as well as the Father's throne the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him that's that's all of the regenerate through the ages we are there in the new heavens and the new earth to serve him. That is worship. Now let me show you what else happens in this same verse, and I want to use a couple of quotes to tie some things together for some from some key commentary, just so you understand that as I'm building all of this, this isn't something I sat around contemplating my navel for the last two or three weeks, trying making up these kind of connections. Umberto Casuto is a brilliant Jewish exegete. Not a believer, but he is profound in the text. And he makes a statement related to Eden. And he's talking about the Ezekiel passage, the uh, anointed cherub there, which we know is Satan, and his presence there. And he makes a comment at the end of this quote that the cherub there is not necessarily outside of paradise as it's depicted here, but actually inside it. The reason I'm citing that is here's a guy who is looking at Eden as paradise. Okay, you get another guy who does that, and that's Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And in Arnold's commentary on Genesis, he makes the point that in Genesis 2 and 3, you have the presence of paradise on the earth. Paradise is a term that refers to Eden, and that paradise is lost in Genesis 3. John, That's where John Milton got the title for his poem, Paradise Lost. And of course, the sequel to it was Paradise Regained. And so Arnold has in his chart of comparing Genesis to Revelation, a whole list of different things, one of which is Paradise Lost in Genesis 3, Paradise uh, Regained or Restored in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 21 and 22. Another important thinker and commentator today, very conservative. As you know, we've, we, he went to be with the Lord last, um, last September. We were struggling with Harvey, so not paying attention, but uh, he was, I think he was 100. He was 99 or 100, almost 100. And he said, the earliest description of paradise is in Genesis 2. Man's banishment from it is in Genesis 3. Luke 23, 43 tells of a restoration to it. That's talking about a future restoration of paradise. 
And 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 4 speaks of a vision. Paul has a vision of going to paradise. And it's a promise of a future enjoyment uh, within it is in Revelation 2, 7, which is part of a reward for those who are uh, persevering believers. So he then says the five verses that begin Revelation 22 show that God's redemption will return the new creation to the Garden of Eden state and to the Creator's intention for humanity. See, this is the story of the Bible. It's paradise lost and got everything God is going to do to bring it to a culmination when we get to the end in the new heaven and the new earth. And when we do this, we're going to see a lot of threads, a lot of images, a lot of, of terminology that just goes through the Bible. And, and one of the things that I find so neat about that is it shows that th the Bible just couldn't be made up. You've got over 40 writers writing these books over a period of, of uh, 1,500 years, and yet they use similar vocabulary when they're talking about similar things, and, and this just can't be coincidence. And there are ways that the text is structured. If we have time tonight, I'll get to it. If not, it'll be next next time where it just isn't coincidence the way God structured his word. And if we believe that the word is inspired by God and, and is inerrant, then, then these things are the way they are to get our attention. Uh, in the original, we miss it in translations. And then Bob Thomas says Revelation, in Revelation 22.3, the absence of the curse and the presence of God and of the Lamb further characterizes the restoration of paradise. And so we see this, all of this is related to understanding a broad view of what revelation or what worship is. In Revelation 22.5, we read, There shall be no night there, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they, that is those who are serving him, will reign forever and ever. So that connects a lot of dots for you. If you understand what Jesus was telling the disciples, that the first will be last and that uh, the key to leadership is humility and serving one another. And so those who serve are the ones who are going to reign forever and ever. And then in Revelation 22, 9, he that is the angel who is uh, guiding John says to him, see that you do not do that for that was he was about to bow down to the angel. He said, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book, then the command worship God. So we see from beginning to end this focus on the purpose of humanity is to worship God. So we need to understand it within a, a biblical framework. And the foundation for understanding worship is God as creator. God's creative activity runs through all these passages that are in relation to, to worship. So Psalm 148 um, verse 5 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this, but first of all, I want to make a comment. I started getting involved in studying about the creation science movement when I was 14 years old. As many of you have heard the story. I had a counselor, Campanile, who, um, who gave me a book called The Genesis Flood to read when I was about 14 years old. A lot of it was over my head, but a lot of it I could grasp. 
And it gave me great confidence that the Bible could be defended as being literally true, especially in the area of creation. And over the years, when the topic of creation would come up, uh, young earth creation versus old earth creation, other aspects of creation, uh, aside from the details of creation, you would have people who would complain and say, or at least express concern, express sometimes express doubts. Uh, sometimes they would express distress over the biblical teaching of creation, that this is a distraction from the gospel. Okay, let that sink in a little bit. I heard that from a lot of people, people whom you may love and respect, but I heard that, that, that we have to focus on the gospel, get people saved. They can't understand things like creation if they're not, if they're not regenerate. Well, yes and no, but you can't talk about Jesus without talking about creation. You don't know who Jesus is if you don't know uh, uh, about creation. And this has become a, a contemporary problem because, as I pointed out Sunday a couple of weeks ago, that about, I guess it's about three weeks ago now, uh, Dr. Ken Ham, who's the president and founder of Answers in Genesis Ministry, they're the ones who have the Creation Museum up in Kentucky, and now they've got the Ark uh, Museum there as well, that on his uh, radio show, he said that uh, Andy Stanley, who's a pastor of one of the largest churches in the Atlanta, Georgia area, and son of a very well-known, uh, much more orthodox father, that Andy Stanley has made some extremely distressing comments about the Old Testament. And uh, he said uh, recently in a sermon that Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their understanding of the faith. And when he went on to explain that, he said, well, many have lost faith because of something about the Bible or something in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, he said once they can no longer accept all the historicity of the Old Testament, once they couldn't go along with all the miracles or once somebody poked a hole in the Genesis creation, you know, uh, myth, so that's what he characterizes Genesis creation, then um, he says once they did away with this, then their whole house of cards, faith, came tumbling down because they were taught it's all true, it's all God's word, and if you find one part that's not true, then uh uh-oh, the whole thing comes tumbling down. So he's attacking and basically saying you don't really need to know this. In contrast, what the Bible shows is that understanding God as creator is foundational and fundamental to understanding everything else in the Bible. If you throw out creation, uh, you're going to have some some incredible problems because if you don't understand uh, creation, then you don't understand the purpose and meaning of humanity. You don't understand the value of mankind. You don't understand the basic problem, which is sin. And you don't understand that the ones who have the basic problem are all of us and that we're spiritually dead. You don't understand what the solution is, which is redemption. And if you don't understand sin and redemption, you can't understand why God needs to send a Savior and why you need to believe in Jesus who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. So all of that is wrapped up and stands on a doctrine of creation and the historicity and the accuracy of Genesis 1 chapter 1 through chapter 3. So when we look at the Bible, we see this emphasis that the God of the Bible 
created ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, something. Before there was a universe, there was absolutely nothing except for God. And he spoke, he commanded, and it came into existence. There was nothing, and then there was something. That is the most profound thing. And if God can speak something into existence out of nothing, then all of these attempts to assimilate to evolution are just are, are, are unnecessary because what they do then is to minimize God as the creator. If he made something out of nothing, then why would he need to do this over millions or billions of years? Why would he need to use a mechanism like evolution, all of these other things and uh, that violate this basic precept of God as the creator? So I want to just run through a few things to show you how central this is to worship. First of all, this passage in Psalm 148.5, this is a psalm that calls upon um, the creation where it's personified to worship God. Five times in this psalm, there is a call to worship. There is a call to the, the moon and the stars for everything to, and, and, and then the only sentient beings called upon to worship God in that in that uh, psalm are the angels. So the angels are called upon to praise God. Now the reason is then given in this verse. Let them, that is the stars and the moon and the sun and everything in the creation and the angels, let them praise the name of Yahweh for he commanded and they were created. And the word there for create is a word bara, which, mean, which is only used of God. Only God creates using that verb. No human being is ever said in the Old Testament to bara anything. This is a divine act of creation. And so we see that the angels are called to worship God, and this is grounded on his creation because he created them. And I want to look at and read through a couple of Psalms because Rather than going through, I'm not, I, I'm not even going to make much of a comment as I go through, but I want to show you the centrality of creation to worship. In Psalm 8, it's written to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath. It's a Psalm of David. And he says, O Lord our God, how excellent is your name on all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Now, that is a profound statement because the glory of God, as we've seen, that term, chavad, has the idea of the weightiness, the significance, the importance of God. If that is set above the heavens, and the heavens is a term that incorporates all of creation, if God's glory is above that, then that, that means God is superior to everything that's created. It, it, it emphasizes the creator-creature distinction. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So this somehow relates it to the creation of everything to his enemies. I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, that's using an anthropomorphism, just picturing God as an artist, uh, creating, uh, building the the universe uh, the moon and the stars which you have ordained what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him 
For you have made him, that is human beings, a little lower than the angels, yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. And what is that glory and honor? Why is man important? Because he's in the image of God. He is God's representative to rule over his creation. In verse 6, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. Oh, this is a terrible doctrine that man rules the environment. Just, just it, it runs completely counter to all this pagan environmentalism that dominates our culture today. Uh, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the pass through the paths of the sea. O oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This psalm becomes meaningless if God didn't create everything ex nihilo and if Genesis 1 and 2 is not literally true. Then we look at Psalm 137. One other comment on that. No pagan god can do this. The pagans worshipped the sun god. They worshipped the moon god. They worshipped animal gods. You go to Egypt and you had crocodiles and all kinds of other creatures that are worshipped. They're worshipping the creatures and what is extolled here. And God is, is that God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, created all of those things. Those are not gods. They are the creation of the God. So we come to Psalm 136. One, we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then there's a chorus that runs through this whole psalm. And for sake of time, I'm not going to repeat the chorus. It's for his mercy, his faithful, loyal love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Uh, he is superior to all of the false gods. Uh, there's a polemic that runs through here. A polemic is an argument against something and to show that something is not valid and that something is not um, not accurate. And so what they're showing is it is God who is superior to the gods of the pagans. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Uh, verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders. Well, what are these wonders? Creation. To him who by wisdom made the heavens. Verse 6, to him who laid out the earth above the waters. Remember in Genesis 1, you have the waters that were below the earth, the waters above the earth, and God separated the land, and uh, dry land came out of the waters below. Uh, verse 7, to him who made great light. So you can't worship the, the god. One of the goddesses of uh, Babylonia was the god goddess Tiamat which is a cognate to the Hebrew word tehom, which is the word for the deep in Genesis uh, 1-2. And so the idea that, that God is over the waters and can cause the waters to separate shows that, that God has, is superior to the Babylonian uh, goddess Tiamat. Uh, he makes the great lights. That's the sun and the moon. So you have the worship of the sun god. You have the worship of the, of, of the moon god. And they're worshipped by the pagans. And this was always a problem in Israel's history because uh, they would get sucked into the worship of the, uh, of the pagan gods. And you see one example of this, I think it's in around Ezekiel 15, somewhere in that neighborhood. You find, no, Ezekiel 9. Ezekiel is is goes to the temple and the leaders 
of the of the temple worship are standing out in front of the east gate and the east, east gate obviously is facing the east and a lot of people think well that had something to do with the rising of the sun and uh, bringing illumination into the temple and stuff like that but but you got to pay attention this happens also in Jeremiah what's happening there is Ezekiel makes the observation they are facing east what are they doing they are worshiping the sun they're apostates they're into idol worship what has to happen visually and physically if you're going to worship Yahweh in the temple you have to turn around and turn your back to the sun and worship the true God it's a physical representation of the rejection of of uh, idolatry and the allegiance to the God of Israel. So, you know, God makes the great lights. The, the sun and the moon are not gods and goddesses. They're, they're created by the God. And then um, all of this just emphasizes God's creation. So creation is, is at the very core of, of worship because God is the creator of all things. Psalm 29.9, the voice of the Lord. See, he speaks and things are. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says glory. God speaks and the deer gives birth. Birth and death are under God's control. You don't worship death. This was part of Cain and I worship the God mote. You don't worship death. All of the, these are not gods and goddesses. They're all under the, under the control of God. So when we start working our way through this, first thing we notice is that the first glimpse of an angelic worship that we see is directed to God as creator for his creation. And this is in Job 38, 4 through uh, 7. And there in these rhetorical questions of God to Job, what he's doing by asking questions is to point out the emptiness and the finiteness of Job's knowledge. He's talking about, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, the beginning of creation? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together. That's a term for the angels. They are worshiping God and praising him in, in unity when he is creating the heavens and the earth. And they all shout together for joy. Another uh, glimpse that we have of this is in Isaiah 6.3 and then in the future in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 4 and 5. In Isaiah 6.3, when the seraphim... Uh, are crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. What that is making a statement about his creation because God created the earth. What do we have in Psalm 19.1? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. For the earth... Uh, to be full of his glory. It is expressing his glory. It is a representation of the significance and the importance of God. And so the God as a creator of the heavens and the earth is, is what is embedded and implied within this, this verse. And then we get to its echo in the future. 
So from the beginning of creation, we, God is praised by the angels for creation. Uh, during human history, he's praised by the seraphim for creation. And at the end, he is praised, can still being praised by the angels uh, for creation. We read in Revelation 4, 8, uh, uh, four living creatures, uh, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night. So this goes on and on and on. This is a continual uh, song to, to the Lord. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive what? Glory, honor, power. That all relates to the majesty of God, for you created all things. We worship the God's majesty because he's the creator. You take away the doctrine of creation, you strip the foundation out from under biblical worship. You created all things, and by your will they exist and are created. So we see the creation is the starting point for worship. It starts with the angels, and this is their uh, primary emphasis in their worship to God. Second, we see from the Old Testament that creation is related to appreciating the majesty of God. Second Chronicles 29.11 is a, is a key passage here. The context is interesting. This is near the end of David's life. We'll get there when we eventually close out Second Samuel. But this is his sort of his parting message to the Israelites. God has told them that he cannot build the temple, that that's reserved for his son Solomon. But David drew up the plans. David made sure all of the building materials were brought together. He organized everything. And then the temple was going to be built with precious metal and, and jewels. And so it was going to be expensive. It was probably the most expensive temple in the ancient world. But, of course, God provided everything. And the people came, a time of incredible prosperity in Israel at the end period of David's reign and the beginning of Solomon's reign. Uh, the wealth was, was just incredible. And they came and they make these free will offerings of precious stones and of, of uh, precious metals. And so David is thanking them for that and he's offering praise to God for providing the, uh, all of this for his people. I mean, from the people for God. <clears throat> and in First Chronicles twenty nine eleven, we read, "Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory." Uh, the gl word for glory there isn't the word that we have usually have there kavod. It's a word that means uh, beauty or pride. It's used a number of times uh, in the Old Testament, emphasizing the the, the beauty. Uh, the beauty of God. So we know that God is a God who creates beauty and it reflects him as beautiful. And I've talked about that before. We've talked about music and singing and, and we should have a great sense to the degree that we can to promote uh, that which is beautiful because that reflects uh, God who he is and his creation. Uh, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. There's uh, our word there. We'll see it again in just a minute. 
For all that is in the heaven and the earth is yours. It's his because he created it. That's embedded there. His power, glory, victory, majesty are all based on his being the creator. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as its head. Now here are the three key words that are translated majesty in the Old Testament. The first word is gava, which refers to majesty in the sense of his excellence. He is superior to everything. He is the ultimate benchmark for quality, for perfection, for beauty. Everything comes from God. The second word is the word hod, which is the word that was used in in the uh, First Chronicles twenty nine eleven passage we just looked at. Uh, and it's translated with terms like splendor, or majesty, vigor, glory, and honor. And then the third word is the word harar, which talks about ornament, splendor, or honor. So all of these are talking about the undescribable beauty and glory and brilliance of God. Foundational to understand who God is. First Chronicles sixteen twenty six and 27 says, For all the gods of the people are idols. So when we th- see these passages talk about God, the God of gods, that's talking about Yahweh Elohim's superiority over the false gods of all the peoples. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. See, once again, you see God as a creator foundational to worship. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. So when we think about worship, our focal point is on the glory of God. Our focal point is on his majesty, his character, and that is first and foremost expressed through creation. We'll get into it later, but it's secondly, it's going to focus on his work of redemption, but we haven't gotten to the fall yet. Um, Psalm 145, 4 and 5 David says, one generation shall praise your works to another. That's talking about the ongoing transmission of, of uh, praise. That one generation after another sings the same thing. That's why I have the Psalms. Uh, shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. So the wondrous works are creation, as we've seen defined in, in the Psalms and in other passages. So we meditate on God's creation. And this uh, uh, this is critical f- for understanding genuine biblical worship. Third point that we see in terms of God as creator is that he is the ex nihilo creator of all things, created out of nothing, and that's foundational to everything in our lives. Uh, for as I said earlier, without an, without creation as the Bible describes it, there's no basis for redemption. There's no basis for understanding the need for redemption, which is the fall. There's no basis for the value of humanity. There's no basis for ethics. Uh, none of these. There's no basis for talking about what's right and what's what's wrong. In the ancient world, you have these pagan gods and goddesses that um, that are worshipped, and they're just basically grotesque. They are often caricatures of human sinfulness. They're involved in adultery. They're involved in violent wars and violent activities so that in the Babylonian creation myth, you have one god uh, killing another god and then ripping her body apart and using that as the building blocks for creation. Uh, 
So nothing is created out of nothing. It is simply these these uh, gods who are uh, very grotesque, perverted, and very human uh, doing this activity. So much of the passages on creation in the Bible are uh, these polemics. Now, po- po- anything that's polemical today is not politically correct. It is uh, it is attacked by the radical left, but that's just Satan's ploy because God uses polemics all the time and God makes fun of false religions. And that's what's happening in these passages. He's often poking fun at at people who believe that that they go out in the forest, they cut down a tree, they chop up half the tree and they use it to uh, heat their house and they burn it in the fire and then they carve up the other half of the tree and then they bow down and worship it. And and Isaiah just makes great fun of uh, the Israelites during his time for their uh, their idolatry like that. So that's what is meant by a polemic. Uh, in the Canaanite religions, it was really perverse. All of their religions centered around prosperity. Uh, we want to, uh, you, we have to motivate the gods to make uh, everything fertile, to have uh, crops that are productive, to have children. And so the whole idea was we're going to go into the temple and have sex with a prostitute because that is a form of sympathetic magic where it encourages the gods to make us productive. And so this was one of the most perverse forms of of worship in the ancient world. And uh, Genesis just flies in the face of that. God speaks. He commands and everything comes into his existence. And he guarantees blessing and fertility on a permanent basis, not because you have to keep coming back to him every year uh, to somehow uh, convince him and manipulate him into giving you uh, prosperity. He simply speaks and it comes into existence. That's completely contrary to all the religions uh, at the time. So his ex nihilo creation is uh, foundational. Fourth, we can't understand Jesus without a biblical doctrine of creation. Jesus reaffirms Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 several times in his ministry, but in John 1, with the prologue to the Gospel of John, John is defining who Jesus is. He calls him the Logos, translated the Word. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. And what that means is when, when things began, the Word was already present. It's a, the Greek tense there indicates continuing existence. Uh, in the beginning, the Word was already continually existing, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there he's affirming that the Word, the Logos, this person, is alongside of God and is equal, equal, equally divine. He was in the beginning with God, and then in verse 3, all things were made through him. That is the Logos. All things are made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he's saying Jesus is the creator. Now, in the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the architect, the planner. Jesus Christ is the one who executes the plan. And God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who renovates 
the creation. We see that in Genesis 1-2 after there's already been a judgment on the earth that the Holy Spirit uh, is moving. The Spirit moves on the face of the deep. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit is renovation. So John 1, 1 through 3 emphasizes the role of Jesus. And also we have uh, in Colossians 1, 16, for by him all things were created, talking about Jesus, for by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created uh, through him and for him. The fifth thing that we see is that God as the creator is contrasted to all these false gods, the idols. That happens again and again and again in the Old Testament. But the emphasis is that God is the one who's the creator. First Chronicles 16.26, for all the gods of the people are idols. They, they're manufactured by human beings. But Yahweh made the heavens. You never have any kind of ex nihilo creation among the gods of the ancient Near Eastern people or of any of the gods of any of the other, other religions. And God speaks and it comes into existence, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He commands and it comes forth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep. That's to home again, a cognate to Tiamat, the goddess of, the, of water, the oceans. And here we have gods in control of the waters. So again, that's a polemic against the gods of the Babylonians. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. That's part of worship is fearing the Lord. Why? Because he is the creator. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. So essential to worship is the understanding of creation. Essential to understanding redemption is God as creator. It's not an optional idea. It is foundational to understanding all of the scripture. Not only that, it's foundational to understanding the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. Creation is described in Genesis 1 as the foundation of the law and the rationale for all the Ten Commandments. Remember, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Penta for five, like Pentagon. Pentagon in Washington, D.C. has five sides. It's a, uh, 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 and, and so when you have the Pentateuch, this, these are the five books. Genesis is the prelude. It tells where the Jewish people came from, why God had to call out Abraham, and what their purpose is. And then we skip about 300 or 400 years, and then we have Exodus, and we see that the descendants of Joseph, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and jo uh, Jacob, and Joseph are all in Egypt, and they're slaves to the Egyptians. And then God's going to free them to bring them to the land that he promised uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when he's going to take a people to a land to make a nation, to have a nation, you have to have a law code. You have to have laws. You have to be a people of law. That's where we got the idea in this, in this country. And you have a lot of radical people on the left right now who want to do away with borders. When you do away with borders, you, do, you kill a nation. A nation cannot exist without borders that are enforced any more than you can take care of your property 
wherever you live or rent or whatever you have, that's yours. And if you just open all the doors and windows so that anybody can come in whenever they want to pretty soon, you have no property. You have nothing. Uh, that's a guarantee to self-destruction is to have open borders. And so uh, in order to have a nation, you have to have borders, but you have to have a law. You have to have the rule of law, and that's the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are grounded on an understanding of Genesis 1. Now, think about this. If the U.S. Constitution is grounded on the Mosaic Law, and the Mosaic Law is grounded on Genesis 1 as literal creation, don't you think it's a logical conclusion from that that the United States con co Constitution is ideologically grounded on a literal Genesis 1. Without that, you've lost the whole basis for the law. But you can think about that later. An example of it is in the fourth commandment, you have the command to work six days and then to rest. And here's where you have the word nuach that I pointed out earlier in Genesis chapter 1. On the seventh day, it's a Sabbath uh, of the Lord your God. You'll do no work. It doesn't mean be a couch potato, but you're not going to do the labor you do the previous six days. Now you're going to uh, labor in the worship of God. Uh, why? Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. If God didn't literally create in six 24-hour consecutive day periods, that command is meaningless because it's saying God had this pattern. For six consecutive 24-hour days, he worked, then he rested on the seventh. Well, if those were long historical periods, then you can say, well, I'll work for 6,000 years and rest the 7,000 year which means I never have to rest. I never have to take time to worship God. That's, that's meaningless. So unless those six days are literal 24-hour consecutive periods, the whole Sabbath law, which is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, is rendered, rendered meaningless. So that's just one example. Uh, creation answers the question, why should I obey the commands of God? Why should I do what God says to do? Because that runs all the way through the Mosaic Law is love the Lord your God and follow his commands. Well, what's interesting is that uh, in, the, in Exodus chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments. It, you think that's a, just happenstance. That's a coincidence. In Genesis chapter 1, we read, and God said ten times, Okay, and God said, so those are 10 words of God in Genesis chapter 1. And in those 10 words, there are seven expressed commands. You think that's a coincidence that there are seven commands in those seven days. So what we see is because all creation obeyed God when he commanded them to come into existence. That's why we should obey God. Look, look around. It's a perfect creation. God commanded and everything came into existence. And if they obeyed God's command, we should obey God's command. Second thing is pointed out is God's command produced absolute perfection and beauty. So what's wrong with obeying God's commands? It's, it's perfect. He expresses perfection. God's commands produce life, harmony, and peace. So if you want to have life, harmony, and peace, that's the theme of all the wisdom literature, Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all of that is predicated on the understanding God, following God's commands 
will produce real life in your life and happiness. And that's because the commands of God in Genesis 1 produce life, harmony, and peace. We look at the first commandment. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up shortly. Uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? All the other gods that they were worshiping were forces of nature or they represent aspects of God's creation. And God is saying, why should you worship them? You don't have any other gods before me because I made all of them. I made the sun, I made the, the moon, I made the air, I made uh, the water. Uh, I, I made everything. I made the stars. Another example I talked about just a minute ago is in the uh, fourth commandment and the emphasis on, uh, on the fourth, fourth commandment. Now, what's interesting in this is when you look at, uh, go back to Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Uh, I may come back and take this apart a little later. This is just kind of interesting in the way I talked about the structure of Genesis chapter 1, the whole creation story, that this is not just something that's thrown together, but is very well uh, crafted. There are three consecutive parallel lines. Each contains seven words and is divided into two parts. The first part ending in every case like a threefold refrain with the words, the seventh day. And it doesn't come across that way in English, but that's the way it is stated in, in the Hebrew. Uh, only one who is insensitive to the beauty and majesty of that lines, writes Casuto, could conceive of the possibility, uh, conceive of the possibility that this just happened by chance. He goes on to list a number of interesting things that relate to the structure of Genesis 1. He says, uh, each of the three nouns that occur in the first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, express the basic concepts of the whole section, God, heavens, and earth. And he goes on to say, thus the name of God occurs 35 times, that is 5 times 7. Name of God occurs 35 times, 5 times 7. Um, on the fact that the divine name in one of its forms occurs 70 times in the first four chapters, uh, he says, you know, he's got further discussion on that. So this number 70, it's all structured very, uh, very clearly. He says um, uh, 10 times God's, we have the phrase God said, and in those set, uh, 10 statements, uh, there are seven commands. Uh, the terms light and day are found seven times in the first paragraph, and there are seven, seven references to light in the fourth paragraph. Water is mentioned seven times in the fifth and sixth paragraph forms. The word uh, living beast occurs seven times. The expression it was good appears seven times. The first verse has seven words. The second verse contains 14 words, which is seven times two. You don't have to remember all of this. The point is there's a structure there that everything culminates in what? The seventh day. There is an order and purpose uh, to all of this. And what we'll find out is that when we go a step further in this study and we start talking about the tabernacle, which is the centerpiece of God's dwelling, that in God's revelation of how to build the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 to 31, 
there are a series of chapters, and in the Hebrew, there is a structure. There are seven speeches for each of the seven days of creation, and the seventh speech relates to Moses, the, the function of the worship of God. All of this is designed to point to the fact that man's purpose is to worship God. And in the Sabbath rest, we have this word nuach, which means rest. That idea of rest runs through the Old Testament. It is hammered by Jesus. What does he say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. It's the rest that's lost in the fall. And then we come to Hebrews, and Hebrews says there is a future rest. And that relates to the uh, coming uh, kingdom. And so the Sabbath rest that is talked about in Hebrews is yet future. What this tells us is that, as I pointed out at the beginning, you understand what's going on in Genesis 1 through 3. We lose paradise. Paradise is restored ultimately, and it's all related to the worship of God throughout this fallen period and how it will culminate. And we're commanded in Revelation 22 in the new, new heavens and new earth to do what? Worship God. That's the focal point for our lives. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study this tonight and to get this overview and see the significance of your creation, your creative activity, that you are the one who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And this is not just some poetry. It's not just some hyperbole. It's not just some imagery, but it is a specific statement that is foundational to our understanding, your majesty, your power, your glory, and our role as those in your image, created in your image, in order to rule over this creation and how that was lost and how that will be restored. And Father, we're thankful that all of this culminates in our future uh, realization of redemption in what the uh, scripture refers to as the regeneration when all is realized in the future in the new heavens and the new earth when we will worship you as we continue to carry out the responsibilities you delegate to us at that time and we pray that we will be we will marvel at what we have learned and what is exposed in the scriptures and we pray this in Christ's name amen